Hey everybody, my name is Matt and welcome to the Dream Podcast. Now today we have a special guest who is no stranger to the Dream family considering he's actually been on our podcast before and that guest is none other than Marty Solomon. Now Marty is the president of Impact Campus Ministries as well as the creator and host of the Bama Podcast which I know most of our listeners are familiar with. Now let me just say this for those who have not listened to uh, Marty's podcast. If you've been to our church or have heard myself or Josh teach a dream, then it's likely that you've heard bits and pieces of the Bama podcast. That's how much of uh, an impact that it's made on us. But I want to keep this introduction brief so we have plenty of time for our juicy topics today. So Marty, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. No, it's good. That was a good introduction. I think I heard somebody say on one of our recent guest interviews, that's a What'd they say? That's a whole lot of barbecue sauce for a little pig or something like that. I can't remember what the... <laughs> it was great. <laughs> hey, awesome. Well, before we go into any of our questions, uh, if you want to maybe throw in something else that maybe I missed or more about who you are, I know that you were on our podcast before, but just for those who didn't listen the first time, if you could just tell us a little bit more about what you got going on. Yeah, uh, I got into campus ministry. Um Let's see, that was 20, 2010, after I'd come back from studying with Ray Vanderlaan in Israel and Turkey. Um, came back with kind of this uh, fire to want to experiment with some of those rabbinical discipleship principles I had encountered over there. So I got into campus ministry, worked with college students, did that for about five years at the University of Idaho, Washington State University. Um, really was doing Bema, not as a podcast, but as a class on those campuses. And then they asked me to serve as the president of Impact, which meant I had to travel a lot more. I was going to be gone. So we kind of took our content. We moved it online, really focused on the students there. I wasn't trying to start a podcast, but um, we, we were just trying to get our content to where the, the local students there could access it. And, uh, and then the podcast just kind of took off. So um, we're still leading Impact Campus Ministries, trying to plant campus ministries around the United States. And then... Uh, yeah, and then Bema is this resource that we use kind of within that, that a whole lot of other people enjoy as well. So that's that's kind of where I've been. Awesome. Well, hey, on top of that, too, I know that you hadn't mentioned it yet, but I had already actually planned to ask about it. You have a new book that's coming out early next year called Asking Better Questions of the Bible, A Guide for the Wounded Wary. I've always pronounced that word wrong, and Longing for More. You got it. Uh, but if you want to tell us a little bit more uh, about that as well, maybe like what the writing process has been like, uh, maybe what the publishing process has been like, and then maybe even give us a little teaser, you know, for what's to come in the book. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate you asking that. Um, yeah, the writing process has been wild. So yeah, it's set to release in February, February 7th of, of this next, this coming year. And, um, yeah, yeah, I can't remember. I, you know, it's all kind of a blur, um, getting asked to write a book and then going through getting that. And I know how much of a struggle that is for, so I've just, God's been good. And I, I try to steward that cause I've had it pretty easy compared to the road that other people have walked, but the writing process in general, I've been told before the first book is in you. Like it's, it's already in you. It's kind of waiting to come out. The first book's the easy one because it's kind of been formulating for years. And that was probably true. This book was, you know, a lot of people talk about getting away and writing one to three hours a day every single day. That's not my style. So I got away for two weeks. I, I wrote a rough draft in one week away at a, at a, at a kind of a cabin. And then I, I revised it with another week. 
Um, and, and so there was kind of two weeks of writing. That will not be typical. I can tell you the next book, if there is one, is going to take a whole lot more work and a whole lot more time. But this book is essentially, it will walk through every genre of literature in the Bible. So there's a chapter on Torah. There's a chapter on history. There's a chapter on the prophets. There's a chapter on wisdom literature. There's a chapter on the gospels and a chapter on Pauline literature and apocalyptic literature. And basically every chapter is trying to recognize each part of your biblical library is unique. They, they're not all the same. I think a lot of us just come to the Bible and we kind of interact with the Bible the same way. No matter what, what part of the Bible I'm reading, I just kind of do the same kind of exegesis. But you really can't do that because Torah is not the prophets, and those two are not the wisdom literature, and that's totally different than the Gospels. And so understanding which part of the library am I pulling off of the shelf when I open up my Bible, because understanding that leads me to ask the right set of questions as an interpreter, and then and so the book is just essentially about asking asking better questions, because that, that leads us to a better reading and a better understanding of the Bible which will probably be less destructive to other people, less less leveraged for our own theological systems. And uh, so that's that's the goal. That's the design. Awesome. Well, hey, that's, that's actually perfect because um, honestly, one thing that our church has specifically been going through recently is a lot of people have been asking these questions. I've been approaching the Bible and they're like, there's got to be something more than just what we've been handed and reading everything on the surface and seeing everything as just, this is literally what it is from the surface level. And um, we've been looking for a resource that was reliable into going into that, you know, book wise. So we have the Bama podcast, which has done a good job of doing that. Uh, But I think this resource will be super helpful. If you're listening to this way down the road um, after February, February, February 7th is what it's set for. February 7th. So if this is after February 7th, we'll have the link to that in the uh, the show notes as well. So please go and check it out. And I can get you a pre-order link as well to put in there even now. There even you go. Now. And you can, you can change that link later. But And I'll, I'll say this too, based on what you just said. Hopefully what this book is, when you say talking about resources you can trust, and even what the Baymont podcast is, hopefully we're just like a clearinghouse like we're connecting because I am not the expert. I do not have enough letters after my name to be that expert, but I love to read those experts and connect other people to them. That's what Bema is. And that that's what hopefully the book is. Ever at the end of every chapter is going to be a whole list of resources. Some of them you're not going to like. Some of them you will. And that's the job of study and research is to weed through those things, find the ones you do like and trust, reject the ones you don't, and just keep on moving and learning. So yeah. Yeah, and reading, funny that you say that, because reading is something that I, I hated reading growing up, because, <laughs> because I was always required to do it, and I did re- I barely passed that part of high school and middle school and things like that, and so, but recently, after going through the podcast and uh, reading some of those resources that you've recommended, uh, there's been other resources that I've tried that I have been like, man, this is just tough to read, but through reading that, I'm able to see, you know, hey, like, this isn't what I agree with, but now I kind of know more about what I do believe, even though I'm reading something I disagree with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, I'm right. I was about to name one of the books. I probably shouldn't do that here. (laughs) Safer play. Safer play. That's wisdom right there. Good work. (laughs) Well, while we're on the topic of asking better questions, one of the things uh, that truly impacted me about the podcast was the fact that it invites the listener to wrestle with and ask the tough questions. Now, my question for you is based on your experience, 
what are some of the best ways to wrestle with some of these tough biblical passages and topics that we run into? And how does one deconstruct some of the things that we're that we were handed in 21st century evangelicalism that maybe don't yield the best kingdom fruit, if you will? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and man, there's about a million answers to it. But some of the best ones that I would I would I would send an anchor down into kind of the hermeneutical question for me is a question about authorial intent. So if we can start asking just the basic questions that spin off of what did the author mean when they wrote this and what did the original audience hear when they heard it? There is a there is an original conversation happening between author and audience. There is and that's the inspired one. And that's 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 not to take away from what the Holy Spirit can do when you and I sit down with the Bible. I mean that's absolutely valid and true. And luckily, God's been doing that for 1,800 years, working in spite of us and in spite of our ignorance in so many ways. And we'll continue to do that for centuries, by the way. So that's not to speak against what the Holy Spirit can do. But a lot of us just kind of open the Bible and read it. We have this historical awareness, but we read it like it's this book for me. Like we read it essentially, I read me onto it. I read me into it. I read, it's it's me and what we have to do is we have to somewhat separate ourselves from the meanness and put ourselves back into the conversation between the author and the audience. As soon as I understand that conversation, well, now I can bring it to me. But the inspired conversation, again, outside the work of what the Holy Spirit wants to do, when the Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. But outside of that, when I can understand that original conversation, now it becomes applicable. Now I can take those principles. Now I can... And, and then you mentioned something, too, in your question about you use that word, which I like, um, but a word that's making everybody all up in a tizzy these days, which is deconstruction. But how do we, for me, the anchor for deconstruction, which we don't have to be afraid of, but for me, and this is not a popular anchor in the deconstruction movement, for me, there's an anchor in the, in the, in the word, in the text, in the Bible. Like, I put my anchor down there because I've seen too much amazing, brilliant goodness. I've, I've experienced too much power in the text in my own life. There's something going on in this book. We call it inspiration. We call it, you know, whatever, this authority, this thing that's, whatever the Holy Spirit does through this book is unique and it's special. Typically, we try to put our anchors down. The church tries to often get us to put our anchors down in theology, in our particular expression, in our tradition, in our box. But man, the word, and, and I think that's one of the things that I love to give through the Baymob podcast. One of my passions is, man, as we go through deconstruction, which is amazing, I just want to be a voice that goes, don't give up on the Bible in the midst of all of that, because the Bible's not our problem. All the institutions surrounding it, sure, that can be a problem. All of our interpretations of it that we've canonized, that can be a problem. But the Bible itself is unbelievably brilliant and deep and beautiful and profound and living and it, it's 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 a thing so those are two things that I would I would say are important in that process yeah that's super super helpful because a lot of our church honestly has been going through a lot of the construction process because most of especially since we're in the Bible belt um, of the country we uh, we were handed a lot of, uh, I mean, if I can be frank, just garbage, like just stuff that is just not helpful in reading the Bible and not helpful in uh, communicating with other people that 
either follow Jesus or don't follow Jesus. It's just everything that we've, well, not everything. Most of what we've been handed, it seems, is just super just all me-centric and what can I get from this? This story is about me and, and my context when there's better questions that can be asked. Um, but I, I, that actually is a good transition into one of the questions I got on Tuesday because we have our midweek service on Tuesday nights. Um, and the question was, is how, like after we have went through this deconstruction process or as we're going through it, how do we engage those of differing beliefs, if we want to even use that word, without getting this mindset of I'm right and you're wrong? Uh, the context for this was that uh, we talked about how we as a church have been going through deconstruction and reconstruction and things like that and and how we engage people. But So how, how should Christians engage someone who carries a belief that they have deconstructed out of without getting the mentality that they are somehow smarter or better than they are? I, ho- I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's even the worst with the old paradigm, the old wineskins that we feel like we've come out of. Like there's the people that are outside of maybe our Christian paradigm and worldview, but then there's the people that are in our Christian paradigm and worldview where we used to be. And sometimes that's the hardest. And so I think one of the things about, it's it's when you talk about deconstruction, there's always this urge to, to figure out where deconstruction, what is the dance between deconstruction and reconstruction? And is deconstruction, there is a wisdom that comes from deconstruction that I don't think we ever put down or finish or complete. And part of what we learned as we went through or as we're going through the process of deconstruction is how it's okay to not know. It's okay to be wrong about things. It's okay. If we go through deconstruction and then just end up somewhere else where I plant my flag, build my spiritual castle, have all my answers, then that was a big waste of deconstruction time because all we did was exchange one one faulty system for another. But one of the things that deconstruction teaches us is how to be more empathetic, how to be more curious. The fact that it's like deconstruction leads us into the place where we've been told to be so scared, like fear this. And then you go through and you realize there's, there's really not a whole lot to fear there. And what that does, it should open us up to talk to people on either sides of those conversations, to be curious, to be empathetic. Deconstruction should hopefully, and I I don't know if it often is, but hopefully it should give us like, these are the places where I am confident. Like it should help us reassess where our faith and our confidence truly does lie. That confidence is what enables us to listen to somebody else and not have to figure out what to do with that because it's not our job, it's God's job. Like it's that it's, it's knowing where our faith and our confidence is truly set that, that enables us to listen. It's also, man, hopefully deconstruction leads us to be more compassionate people. Cause it wasn't, if that's true, it wasn't that long ago when I was where they used to be, if it's group B or whatever we're calling that other group, like when you go on this journey and your parents haven't gone with you and probably won't. When you have an old spiritual faith community that you've come out of or some, and, and they're not coming down the, they're not even, they're not even moving slowly. They're just not, they're they're not on the same path that you are. Yeah, of course, of course, because all human, like all humanity won't be on this same path, 
we're not all going to be going on the same direction. But I can remember what it was like to be there. And so I'm going to extend some kind of compassion to be like, I get it. I get it. And I, I bless you. And I, God's calling me to different places. And I'm a different person than I used to be. But I trust that he's also doing that work in you. And so, you know, it, it gives us compassion as well. Like, that's why I think deconstruction is so healthy. I'm so frustrated that people are so... Um, so frustrated by it and so scared of it because such beautiful good things come out of it. It can, it, it can also just breed a whole bunch of bitterness too, but so many, so much beautiful things can, can come out of it. To kind of go along with that, like one of the things that I've noticed, cause um, you know, I, I've also been teaching now for a few years and some of the churches that I used to get calls from, if you will, this is just a kind of a personal question, I guess for me while we're on the topic um, would, you know, they would have me come and teach and things like that. But after going through this process of deconstruction and, you know, putting out videos or whatever on different ideas, now it seems like those calls are a lot uh, less often. And now I even start hearing the other side of that. Things like, um, you know, you need to read your Bible more or even the term heretic has come up, which I, I hate that word so much because people are so quick to throw it out, especially here in the West. Um, so how, how does one deal with like the negative effects of it, such as like, you know, like losing influence or losing even friends and family who may think that what you're doing is just staunchly against Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the, that's part of the painful part of the process too, but man, but everything has like these two sides to it. It's also part of the liberation, but it's when it's friends or family, when it's like that stuff's still unbelievably painful, especially when it's attached to any kind of trauma or spiritual abuse. Like some of us are coming at us like some pretty dark places. Um, and that has like, like, like an abusive romantic relationship, which is clearly is what it is. And yet it still has this like weird, awkward, addictive, traumatic pain involved with severing. It's the same thing that happens in spiritual communities. Um, so, so that's not to like trivialize it or explain the pain away. There is a pain that goes through that. I think, I think part of, I'm kind of processing your question as I think out loud, which is always dangerous to do on a podcast. <laughs> but I think part of, that's part of the larger process as we re, like we find new communities. We're reassessing our own identity, but that identity also comes with belonging hopefully. And so we belong to new spiritual places and new communities. And so that old space, it it's not built for us now. I mean, I see, I hate that language too. I'm with you. This is tricky. Language is tricky <laughs> yep. because it, it recenters. Like we don't want to be the new center of like, but, but those, every spiritual community and every spiritual space is built for something. And because of that, it works for certain groups of people. Now, we want those spaces to be as accessible, less tribal, and yet there's just a reality to, um, if you're a part of that paradigm, this space isn't built for that paradigm. This space is built for something. And so you just don't fit there anymore. You don't yeah. belong there. And the space itself recognizes that and says, well, we either need you to kind of like shape yourself into this space and again, when you come to a place where you have like this confident, like a, a greater self-confidence of no, this, this is actually where I'm planting my feet. That's no longer, that no longer has the, the same premium that it used to have. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I've gone through that too. Like, I know what you're talking about. Um, and there's almost like a season of like quiet. Will the phone call? You know, will the phone ever ring anymore? Will I get the text? Will I get the text message anymore? Um, and you just keep walking, keep being true to the to the journey, and keep keep finding out where you do belong, and that will breed new connections. It will breed new conversations. It will breed those kind of things. And I would also say it also is our own reckoning. Like this isn't just about our, it's also, this isn't just about our liberation. It's also about us coming to grips with some of the idolatry that we have in our own lives, like platforms and influence. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I I may lose some of that stuff and that, yeah. And maybe that was one of the things that I, I hold a little higher than I ought. Um, and, and I'm going to let some of that go to become a healthier version of me and, and, and maybe that'll come back and maybe it won't. But a healthier version of me is what Jesus was after in the first place. So that's a good question. That's a good question. Caught me off guard with that one. I like that. Yeah, man, that is super convicting for me because, uh, man, I'm already starting to reflect on some things that uh, probably need to shift in terms of how I think about that. Uh, but, yeah. So um, I want to switch gears a little bit. One of the things that you are really passionate about is discipleship. Uh, and I've watched some of your stuff about how I know this, that it's a little bit different now with you being in Cincinnati. Um, but I know that you look at discipleship a lot different than anyone that I've listened to in the best of ways. So that said, could you kind of give us an idea as to uh, what proper biblical discipleship would look like and what that would look like in our present day context? Yes, I've been trying to refine that conversation some because I think at times I've been I've been wanting to offer a corrective, and then I've overextended. This Sunday, I'm actually preaching, as we record this, uh, I'm actually preaching this Sunday on this very topic, and it's been a good opportunity for me to, yet again, repackage, reassess what's... So this is top of mind, so I'll give you what's top of mind. I think there there are two extremes that I'm advocating we avoid. On one hand, there is an extreme that says... uh, discipleship is just kind of like spiritual growth. Like we kind of use it as a very nebulous term. Uh, it's just uh, spiritual formation is discipleship. Or we use uh, we, like 7 a.m. at Starbucks on Thursday morning is discipleship, which is fine. We should be doing all the, I want us to be pursuing spiritual formation. We should we should have people we get together with at Starbucks at 7 a.m. on Thursday morning. Uh, I, I've been involved in a couple mega churches over the course of my career. We often talked about discipleship as like church assimilation, like small group assimilation. Um, none of these things, like let's avoid the extreme of making discipleship like this abstract, nebulous, this thing we're just cut the water we're kind of swimming in if we're a part of Jesus, because that's not what discipleship was for Jesus and his disciples. Discipleship was this thing that like less than 1% of the population engaged. It was this very intentional discipleship, discipleship. They had, they had spiritual formation. They had entire groups of people that loved the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. And disciples were no better than them. But I mean, like less than 1% of their population understood like rabbinical discipleship to be something that they were involved in. So then there's the other extreme based on what I just said, which is like, well, that's the only thing that qualifies as discipleship. And and I came back from Israel wanting to experiment with that, but I didn't want to communicate that that's the only thing that discipleship is. And I think that's a good opportunity for me to like step back a couple steps. I do think there are people in the church 
that should be experimenting with the method that Jesus used for making disciples. I am somewhat alarmed that we abandoned that method that Jesus used and nobody, like there's so little desire to try to re, just at least as an experiment, just as an experiment, not as a heavy handed command from the Lord. Marty hasn't come down the Great Commission mountain (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, why are we not more like, hey, we should be doing this more like Jesus did. But yeah. somewhere in the middle of those two extremes sits a conversation about intention. Discipleship is not just the water you swim in as a believer of Jesus. Discipleship is something you intentionally set out to engage. And it's going to be intentional relationships, people that are shaping you and people you are imitating and mimicking people that are behind you, that you're discipling, that are intentionally in an intentional relationship with you, mimicking you, imitating you. Some 19 times in the New Testament, it's going to talk about follow my example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul's going to say. We've set an example for you to follow, the writers are going to say. Like all throughout the New Testament, example, example, example. We're supposed to be imitating. Whoever claims to be in him, First John, must walk as Jesus walked. How am I going to do that if Jesus is not physically walking in front of me? have somebody else in front of you. Like, so there's an intentionality to discipleship. And and it's not my job to figure out all the details of what that looks like for you or for me, whatever. It's my, I, I suppose for me, yeah. But it could look like a million things. I, I just want to propose there's something in between these two extremes that should be shaping what we call discipleship. And, yeah. and it will be very helpful as we form ourselves as leaders. Yeah, because not a lot of people know, like, especially today, the whole idea of the rabbi Talmudim concept is just totally foreign totally. to our context today. Yep. Because what I was told growing up was discipleship was essentially like making sure you reach out to your volunteers during the week so that they continue to keep serving. Right. Or yep. if the, or if they like prayed the prayer to receive Jesus that Sunday, then let's, you know, let's reach out to them and let's get them baptized. That's discipleship. And I'm yep. like, man, like, and, and, you know, at the time, I thought that was like, that, that was it. And it leaves a lot of people asking the question of, is this it? Like, is there anything more than this? Because this feels so, I mean, it even feels wrong. Like, it feels like you're just being dragged along by your church to yep. be a part of what their agenda is, as opposed to, like, actually growing in your walk with Jesus. Yep. And, and so, yeah, it's, it has been, yeah, that, it's just so foreign to our and we've been trying to mimic that a little bit with uh, with our church, uh, with our, I know that we do like small groups during the week, but we've been trying to encourage like even smaller groups of people that are led by someone who is more of a, you know, who can bring more people on the path and uh, lead them uh, in the ways of Jesus in that way, which has been super helpful. But uh, going off of that, now we live in a college town. So Columbia, we have the University of South Carolina here. And uh, most of our church is either currently in college or just graduated college. And so as someone who has been in campus ministry for so long and is still in campus ministry, what are some things that you and your team have done to serve students and help them on their journey? Or what does discipleship look like in that college space? What are some things that worked? Maybe some things that didn't work uh, in y'all's experience? And, And what are some things that we can learn from that? Yeah, I think we're asking a lot of those questions even now. Generations are always changing. Millennials to Gen Z was actually a much bigger gap than people gave credit for. 
Uh, I'm hearing talk now from Gen Z to Alpha. I, I haven't done enough study to even talk intelligently about that yet. But so we're at COVID's changed things. Um, at, we're man. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I know that young people today want authentic, real, genuine, vulnerable spaces to be a, to be spiritual beings. Like uh, our spirituality is a part of who we are, as much as our mental and emotional health or our physical health. Like there's a spiritual component to us. We know that generally speaking, I don't think young people, no matter, no matter what all the statistics say about a biblical worldview or whether they're coming to church or not, that young people, I haven't heard very many people have any, a, a negative thing to say about Jesus. Christians, sure, rightfully so. The church, sure, obviously warranted. Jesus, not so much. So young people are looking for vulnerable, genuine spaces where we can try to figure out what this Jesus thing is, what Jesus has asked of us, what that means about us. Typically, where does the Bible fit into all those things? So I think the thing we've found that's so helpful is, is creating those spaces where you can build those relationships. It doesn't fit well into a lot of the larger institutional models that we used to be used to like the gigantic, huge worship services. I mean, obviously they still work. There's still a need for that. We don't need to get rid of those things, but that's not where the best work's being done with college students. Um, but if we keep trying to attract them into that, we're going to keep, you know, banging our head against a wall a little bit, but we're finding that these smaller spaces, these smaller groups and not just like small groups, but I mean, these more, you can't be authentic with a hundred people in a room. You can't foster those kinds of productive conversations. You can do that with a group of you know, group of three, a group of four, a group of eight, whatever, have these spaces where people are free to discuss, free to think, free to belong, free to include, free to do all these things that usually our typical church experience has made so difficult. Um, those are things, but I wouldn't say we're experiencing like some wave of success that I could pontificate about. We're still trying to figure out how are we, how can we be honest with what we believe Jesus has called us to do as Christians and bring that in a, I don't want to, I don't want to say palatable. I don't want to say relevant, but bring it in a way. Yeah. Relevant would probably be, and I don't mean it like in the trendy church growth way. I mean, like what does the gospel have to say for a college campus? A lot. It should, but we have to wade through all this other stuff that it's packaged in. So trying to figure out how to un deconstruct, unpackage that stuff and still be true to what it is, like to not abandon that. That's hard. That's hard. Yeah. It's hard to figure out how to do that. And we don't have any more answers than anybody else does. We're just trying to be honest and real about it as we, as we try to figure it out. Awesome. That's great. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to pause just for a moment to let you guys know that there's a bit of an awkward transition here. Um, as he was answering that question, I had a pop-up show up on my screen saying that because I was on the free version of Zoom, the call was about to end. So when he finished answering this question, we had to actually stop the call and restart it, thus having the awkward transition into the next question. So if it sounds like it's a bit awkward or a bit out of place, that's why. Just wanted to let you guys know. Um, but anyways, hope you guys enjoy the rest of the interview. All right, so let's go a little bit deeper for a moment. So cue the dramatic music. I may actually play dramatic music there. Um, <laughs> from episode one and onward of Bema, uh, you make it a point to always call the reader back to the first lesson in the Bible, which is essentially trusting the story that God's telling in the world. 
Uh, and I'm leaving this question kind of broad on purpose, but could you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Like, why is it so important to trust a good God that has good things in store for his good creation? Yeah, it's it, rabbinically speaking, it's going to be, it's going to be central. It's it's all about our posture, and a posture. I mean, in New Testament language, we're going to talk about faith, grace, that versus fear. So, my belief is that the root of the human condition is fear and insecurity. Augustine said the root of the human condition was sin and depravity. I believe that's actually a byproduct. So sin is a byproduct of our fear and insecurity because that's the part of us that is animal-like, the, the, the survival instinct, the always looking over your shoulder to make sure that you can, you can fight or flee. And so the, so the antidote to this is to trust. I think that's the heart of Genesis 1 through 3 is how we fall in God's created order. We're made in his image. He's a God that knows when to stop creating. He's a God that knows when to stop destroying. He's a God that knows when to engage and when to stop engaging, all for the goodness of the goodness. Like, he's here for the goodness of the goodness, and he's made us like him. And what that means is that we're we're not just an animal. We have the same ability to know how to restrain ourselves, to know how to stop. And so the, the story starts with, you've got to trust that creation is essentially good that God is good, that his relationship with creation is good. Because if you do that, you can do anything. If you, if you trust that, you're free to lay your life down for goodness. You're free to serve others. You're free. But if you don't trust that, you're going to live in fear. There's this natural instinct in you to have fear and insecurity. And if you act out of that, it will always be destructive because you're always going to try to protect yourself. And that protection is going to come at the expense of others or the expense of creation or the expense of... And so the Bible starts with this juxtaposition between trust and fear because of what, what spins out of that. And so that's why I think it's, it's, so, it's so absolutely important. And it's probably the main, theologically speaking, the main deconstruction piece for me because Christian theology usually starts with fear, yeah. our sinfulness, what we're not rather than what we are. Um, what God's trying to fix or, or, or remove versus what God's trying to restore. It all depends on whether the story starts with goodness or it starts with a problem. And that makes a huge difference because it changes what the whole arc of the story is actually about. So we, we're constantly trying to call people back to remember what's essentially, like what is most true, most true? What is essentially true? It's goodness. It's, it's, it's truth. It's our belovedness. It's a good creation as God designed. It's wholeness. It's shalom. That's what's most true. Everything else is a, dis, a, a distortion of that. It's a bastardization of the real good thing. But I think Christian theology has somewhat warped that and made it to where the most true thing is the broken thing. The most true thing is the sinful thing. No, that's the distorted thing. What's really true underneath it all is the good thing to begin with. Yeah. Uh, so... I mean, you, you mentioned that you know, Christianity seems to kind of have lost that narrative. I, I feel like typically we start in Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. Like we're quick to go like, well, the, the story of Jesus is that it started in a garden where Adam and Eve messed up. And I'm like, whoa, like what happened to the first part where God created this beautiful creation and everything was good. And he essentially told the people he was writing it to like, 
you were good. You're not like we're not, I'm not looking at you based off of what you can produce. I'm looking at you because you're just good. And uh, that part of the narrative has just been so absent. I feel like from the gospel that we preach from pulpits or even from just conversation that I've had with people, it's like they are quick to be like, man, woe is me for, you know, I was a filthy sinner and I'll always be a filthy sinner. And I'm like, man, like, that's not how God sees you. God sees you as good. You're a good part of this creation. Yeah. And, and, and let's make sure that we don't for a moment, like we are sinners. I, I mean, all that is absolutely true. We're also not going to try to put forth a story that's like, that's not true, but that fits within a larger truth. Exactly. Like my sinful brokenness fits within something that is more true and more real then and it's it's and trust me the ramifications of sin are huge like this isn't making light of sin or rebellion is trivial no it's huge ramifications unbelievable destruction comes from our sinfulness and rebellion but you've got to frame it and put it in its proper place theologically or or it reframes the whole rest of the story and it feels like it was a little dangerous exactly instead of making sin like the center truth of the story right. making the goodness the center truth and sin is something that is distorting that within the person that's living within that. Bingo. Um, so um, kind of going off of that same thing, one thing that we've actually been talking about as a church is Sabbath and rest and uh, and learning to properly give ourselves rest. Uh, and many of our people have actually read or are currently reading The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Eshel, which is one of my favorite books. I love that book. Um, so what would you say to a group of people that is fairly new to this idea of resting and how can we ensure that we don't work too much trying to rest? No, that's a huge, especially from a Jewish perspective. It's a, it's my own Jewish wrestling match and my own Jewish identity. I struggle the most with my practice and understanding of Sabbath as it relates to even the Jewish world today, because those are, those are different things. Um, but for me, through a Jesus lens, Sabbath should be the thing that reminds us of what we just discussed. Sabbath should be us. And I talk on the podcast about my family's mantra. We've had it ever since my kids were little. We rest, we play, no work. God loves us. And really, it's it, you, you could almost go backwards. The whole day is about the fact that God loves us. The whole day should remind us of that truth. Your Sabbath should be a, a day-long reminder over and over again. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Because that's the truth-telling component of Sabbath. Sabbath is trying to remind us of the truth because the whole world's going to try to tell you you're not loved. The whole world's going to try to tell you here's a million things to be afraid of. Sabbath tells you there's nothing to be afraid of because you are beloved. That's why we don't work because it reminds us that God loves us. It remind We play because it reminds us that God loves us. Um, we rest because in that we're reminded that God loves us. Everything should be like the guiding principle for Sabbath observance should be that the day reminds you. So if you're haunted by, am I doing it right? I can promise you, you're not being reminded that God loves you. So do the things that remind you that God loves you. Start there. We can always build our Sabbath, our rest observance, whatever we're, whatever we're learning about when it comes to rest, we can always build from there. But but make sure that we're we're starting on the foundation of my rest should be a truth telling reminder. It should tell me the deepest truth of creation, which is that I am beloved by, by God. Yeah, and one of the things that we we've been reminding a lot of our uh, 
people is that there's a lot of grace too there. Like if, if you, you know, if you fail in this area of resting or you, you know, you're at the end of the day, you're like, man, I just, I did not rest today. Like there's next week, you have next week to do it all over again, figure out what you could do better. But, uh, but yeah, rest is a, a huge thing. And it's something that like, especially the more that we talk about it, there's always that question of like, man, like, like you just said, like, am I resting enough? Am I, am I doing it? Or can, what can I do this when I'm on Sabbath? Can I not do this when I'm on Sabbath? And it's like, well, those, I mean, the fact that you're asking those questions is kind of showing that, you know, maybe you need to not even ask those questions. Be like, Hey, like, what can I do today to be reminded? Like you said, that God loves me and that, um, he has good things in store for me in this creation. Like, what can I do to remind myself? And it's not easy. It's definitely not, e- especially at first, um, especially in a world where we're just constantly go, 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 go. And we're hearing, uh, you know, a lot about entrepreneurship and how you don't take any time to rest. You need to wake up at 4 a.m. and go to bed at, you know, 1 a.m. and just work, 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 work. But it just, it's not the hustle. Go- the hustle. Oh, the my gosh. Thank you, TikTok. Exactly. And it's just not what I believe we were designed for. And I think that's like the the anti-story is that we just got to keep going and keep going just to find our value in the world. When in reality, our value isn't in all this go, 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 go. But it's yep. in the fact that we were created by a good God who loves us. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Six days you have to hustle. But on the seventh, but see what see what the seventh does, though, is it even changes the hustle for the other six. Yeah. Because my identity changes. So now that hustle that I'm doing out of like this sense of like fear of improductivity, this fear of lack, this fear of whatever, all of a sudden that seventh day has even changed the hustle. I like I like I still know plenty of people that hustle in a God centered way. And yet that rest seems to follow them through the week. So yeah, yeah. Six days you have to hustle, but even your hustle will be changed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so I want to switch it up a little bit again, um, trying to make sure I am stewarding your time well, because I don't want to keep you for three hours, even though I know we could talk about some of this stuff for <laughs> a long time. Um, so as a church, those attending and even some who have watched online have been learning a lot, too, about the Easternness of the Bible, which we mentioned this a little bit whenever we were talking about your book. But as we've learned about some of these things, questions begin to arise about adaptation. I don't even know if that's the right word to use, but for example, one of the common questions that that I get is, should we start taking on Jewish traditions or should we become Jewish? Specifically, like with the festivals, we just had the high holidays and we've had some people ask, like, should we observe Rosh Hashanah and should we uh, observe Yom Kippur and things like that? So as someone who is coming actually from a Jewish perspective, uh, what are what are some things that we can make sure that we, I'm trying to think of how to best ask this question, to make sure that we're not misappropriating anything, how can we make sure that we are, you know, we're learning from these traditions, but we're not adapting to these as though we have to become Jewish? Yep. Yeah, you nailed it on the last part of that. Uh, when you speak of appropriation, that's the that's the danger of um, any Gentile space that become like. It's, and especially now, as we are learning more and more in our information age, we're becoming more and more aware of the Jewish roots of Christianity, and that 
like as this this awakening happens, there's this desire to want to lean into that, and the danger of that is is this appropriationism that we got to be really careful of, which usually comes with a whole list of supersessionistic ideas too. Which there's yeah. a word you can spend time Woo. Wikipediaing, but yeah. So we're gonna so there's a there's a and there's a conversation here that a lot of people are gonna see differently. So think critically and do your study and figure out where you all land on this, but. Um, we're going to have a, a deep conversation in session four of the podcast where we talk. This is essentially what your New Testament is about. Like we've been told the New Testament is all about Jesus and how people go to heaven. Your New Testament is really about this influx of Gentiles and this inclusive movement that doesn't know what to do with a bunch of people that aren't under the Jewish covenant. And your New Testament is going to be really clear about, I, I think, in my mind and in the mind of a lot of scholarship really clear about the fact that Gentiles are not entering this, what we would often call the new covenant. I don't love that language, but this church movement, the Gentiles are not entering it and becoming Jewish. They are staying Gentile. That's the, that's the scandal of the gospel. The scandal of the gospel is that Gentiles don't be, and in fact, Paul gets very adamant about this in the book of Galatians. And Paul says, if you take on Judaism, because he's speaking to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish one. If you Gentiles take on Judaism, you ruin the gospel, Paul says, because the, the gospel is that Jew and Gentile sit at the same table. So if everybody becomes Jews, nobody sees the actual gospel. Nobody sees the actual inclusion. And so my personal opinion, what I argue for, is that Gentiles should embrace their Gentile identity, because that's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. We're always wanting to be, so, it's, it's so true. Like we're always wanting to be something we're not. We always yeah. think, we always want to, the gospel tries to get us to realize your identity, who you are, is beloved. Like you don't have to change to become a member of the gospel community. And so that, that message of, for so when Gentiles take on, and then you have a whole nother layer of how the Jewish community perceives all this, which should be some of the fruit that we can test. And the Jewish community says, hey, when you take on the festivals, it kind of feels offensive. Like it feels like you're appropriating this thing that's ours. And not all Judaism feels that way. But when large, large portions of the Jewish community are saying, hey, could you stop throwing Seder meals um, and claiming that it's your meal? There's something to consider. I'm not going to I'm not going to make the decisions for you and your church community, but there's something to be considered there about why is the thing that we're doing, instead of attracting people to this thing that we call Jesus, instead of making it look, why is it offending? And there's a question to be had there about that. So I love what you said at the end of your question. You said, how do we learn? We should be learning from these things. Our, our, our Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. The apostles were Jewish apostles in a Jewish context. We need to be informed by how that helps us shape our understanding of what Jesus was calling us to do. But we shouldn't then therefore try to go be Jews in a Jewish context. We should be more confident in who we are as Gentiles. And then in the church, we can put the two together. We put Jew and Gentile together. That's the gospel. Yeah. So yeah. the Jews don't stop being Jews and Gentiles don't stop being Gentiles, but the two together, well, that's the New Testament community. So, yeah. Yeah, that is huge. Um, and I love what you just said is that like the, the gospel is that, that you are beloved, that who you are in your, like God's not looking at you saying now that you've 
signed up, which I, I don't like that language, but now that you've become part of this thing, like God's not waiting for you to then become something totally different. He's like, no, no, no. I, I, I want you to follow me where you are as you are. Well, awesome. Well, I have uh, really only one more question because uh, I know that we're kind of getting close to our time. Uh, but one of my favorite messages that I heard you uh, deliver, I, I don't know how I found it. It was like one of those recommended YouTube videos on the homepage, but it was a message that you did at Semi Church on Jesus and Philip. Oh, sure. And uh, while we could take, I know we could take probably an entire podcast to talk about that story alone. Um, I want to focus on one part of that uh, story. One of the things that sent me to my knees in conviction was when you discussed the love that Philip had for Jesus and what he endured ultimately because of that great love. And perhaps the thing that convicted me the most was the fact that, you know, we liked, like we, you said this in the message, but we like to associate ourselves with Philip when we are probably more like the Romans in that story. Yeah. Um, so my question is, how can we as followers of Jesus learn to be more like Philip and love Jesus and our neighbor to the point where it very well could lead to something like persecution, which is something that we're not really familiar with here, but what is what are some things that we can learn from that story? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, it's, it's a hard question because the answer to it probably lies somewhere in us having to confront our idolatry. Um, and even, even when we become aware of the idolatry, even when we, uh, there are whole swaths of Christianity that are now awakening to like, let's get rid of Christian nationalism and all that stuff, of which I completely agree, I totally behind. And, and yet, I don't think we often realize how much of that, like the same roots of that idolatry still run through our blood. Because it's about me. And yeah. it's about my comfort and my worldview and my rightness and my and what happened is these early apostles the resurrection changed them and they were now living so that other people could find belonging and you did that by teaching other people to turn to care about other people you didn't do yeah. it by teaching other people to care about themselves you did it by not caring about yourself and teaching other people how to not care about themselves this self-sacrificial way like Jesus invites us to take up our cross, our crosses and follow him. Like Philippians 2. Um, like sometimes people ask me, what's the lesson I think the church needs to learn more than anything else? I, I, and my answer is always Philippians 2 for our day and age. Like we want to win. Even when we deconstruct and wake up, even when we become woke or whatever, like, and I, I don't use that in a derogatory way. I mean, like when we wake up, yeah. to the things that are beautiful. We still seem to want to pursue winning. Like I want to win in my awokenness. And we have to learn that when Jesus, we, we're supposed to take on the very mind of Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but emptied himself and took on the very form of a servant, uh, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that's why every knee will bow. Not because he... Every knee will bow because he lost. And I think that's so backwards to us, we can't even understand it. Like, I think yeah. our American Western minds cannot even wrap our heads around the fact that Jesus is the winner because he 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 was willing to be the loser. Yeah. Um, and that's not easy. I'm like, I'm, li I'm reading a book right now by Catherine McNeil called uh, Fearing Bravely. And she's talking all about this and just killing me with, slaying me with conviction. <laughs> as I as I read it, because it's all about this. And it's like, 
we'll never be able to truly love others. We will always be the Romans if me and mine is what's going to rule the day. If that's what I truly care about, then we'll always end up on the Roman side because the sword is too, it's too efficient and it's yeah. too effective. But if I'm, truly a, if I'm truly in this to follow Jesus who laid down his life for others, well, that, well, then, well then it's going to, and it could, it could lead to some unbelievably dangerous, crazy places because it did for him. It, it wouldn't be any different for us. So I think we like to mush these two things together. I think we want our comfort and our safety and our rightness. And we also kind of want the, sacrif- the sacrificial way of Jesus. But they, they're going to work against each other too often. So we got to figure out which one we really want to be, which one we really want to swear our allegiance to, the way of forgiveness and grace or the other way, me. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like, too, when we look at persecution, especially in America, like the first thing we think about is, man, like I've lost some of my American privilege, you know, like we're so used to having these things. And when, when those things start to go away, we're like, man, I'm being persecuted. But it's like, if you look at some of these stories in the Bible and also in church history, like, especially the way that, that Philip died, like that's persecution. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus all the way to the grave, as opposed to just, you know, like losing one little thing and, and freaking out and you know, crying out like, oh my gosh, God, like we are being persecuted because we lost something so small in comparison to everything else. One of, one of my most retweeted quotes um, is from an episode in session four when we're going through Revelation. And I say, we've mistaken the loss of privilege for persecution. Yeah, Those are not the same things. And in fact, in the Jesus way, we should like willingly, joyfully a, should we even have had that much privilege to begin with in the way of Jesus yeah. ever? But if we do, it, the way to steward that in Christ would be to joyfully give that up on behalf of other people. That's not persecution. That's the opposite of persecution. That that's just that's just generosity. That's just hospitality. That's just other centered. That's just love. That's just loving your neighbor. Um, but again, when our idolatry has taken root, we will mistake. Again, that's the Roman way. If I start losing something, I will I will cry persecution. But that's just because you're losing something that you had doesn't necess- like privilege losing privilege and persecution not the same thing. And yeah. I think somebody like Philip, when you hear those stories, would roll over in his grave if we compared the two. But absolutely, I digress. Yeah, man. Well, hey Marty, thank you so much. Um, again, I know that we could probably talk for hours on end about a lot of this stuff, um, but thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to answer a lot of these questions. Uh, our church as a whole cherishes the resources that you and your team provide um, when we, you know, study in the Bible and even just like your teaching on the holidays. A lot of people have been watching those and learning a lot from, uh, you know, their context in Scripture as well as you know just learning more about the tradition of the Bible. Um, so again, thank you so much. For anybody else that's uh, listening to this and you maybe have not listened to any of his material, I, I'll be the first to recommend the Bama podcast if you want to really just... If you grew up, especially if you grew up around where we are, it's probably not going to be your favorite podcast at first because it's going to be so different than probably what you heard growing up. But... uh at least, you know, just listen to it and, and hear the other perspectives and, and hear that there's a different conversation that's being had 
in the Bible. And I think that you can learn a lot. Um, and then all the links to that, by the way, will be in the show notes. Um, we'll have the link to his podcast, the link to his, uh, the impact campus ministries, uh, the links to his book at pre-order as well as whenever it releases, if you're listening to this later on, but man, Marty, thank you so much. And, uh, we'll have to, when, next time you come through South Carolina, we'll have to bring you in and have you, uh, teach for us one day i think it'll be super awesome a super treat that'd be great i look forward to it i'll be in carolina one day yes sir come watch some college football with us too because we're (laughs) we're big on college football around here yeah you are i love it yeah and you're you're a Bengals fan so like i know that football looks a little bit different for you right now (laughs) it does it does i'm trying to keep my emotions in check (laughs) hey at least they have good jerseys though those white jerseys were those were nice. Were, yeah, those were nice. I ain't, that, no lie there. Well, hey, thank you again. And um, that's going to be it for this uh, episode. If you guys have any questions at all, please feel free to, you can reach out to us. If you're in our midweek group, we have a chat that you guys can reach out to us there, or we have a form that you can reach out to us on the Dream site as well. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.